Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Today we have a conversation with a friend, Ed Rosa. That's me. Hi. My filmmaking partner and I have a YouTube channel, Toothless Richard Productions, where you can see a number of our short films. A blockbuster is a film that makes disgusting amounts of money. <laughs> uh, they, they tend to be movies that sort of invade the popular consciousness in a way that's difficult to avoid. I tell people that a blockbuster is a $100 million gross in a single territory. Walk the Line tells the story of John R. Cash. The brackets for the movie center on a particularly important moment in his life as a middle-aged performer mm. going to Folsom Prison to give a concert for the inmates. We right. open in the prison, we flash back to his childhood, and we race forward to effectively that prison sequence again. Mm -hmm. My paternal grandpa and Johnny Cash, they're not twins, but man, they could be related physically. Okay. There was such a close association visually between these two men all of the years of my growing up that when I realized there was this popular guy called Johnny Cash, he had a reputation as being a real Bible-banging kind of a dude, mm -hmm. as being a reformed alcoholic, as being um, kind of a madman and the man in black. Now, right. my grandpa didn't wear black. But the terseness of how he would speak when he chose to speak, the rarity of the word, right. <laughs> the kind of raw physical challenge of the guy just sort of meeting the world. The other confession here is when this movie comes out in 2005, I was so up to my elbows in diapers and the inability to pay for those diapers that mm -hmm. going out to the show was just beyond me. Right. When we met in a college classroom... I would frequently try to show clips of things that I thought were rad to mm -hmm. sort of scare up student interest. <laughs> and one of the rad things that I showed on the regular was Johnny Cash's version of Hurt. I wear this crown of thorns upon my liar's chair. That really turned a, a whole a new audience onto him. Yeah. Uh, and really, that was kind of a... A real kind of uh, coup, I guess, for a musician uh, at his age to sort of be able to kind of reinvent himself in a way. He's not a has-been exactly, but a deeply old man. Mm -hmm. Video for it is really striking because June Carter Cash, his second wife, mm -hmm. is on screen in the video as well, looking longingly at him, looking lovingly at him. And we know by the time I was digesting the video, she had died and yeah. he was about to. So there are all these levels. That's the moment when I begin to think, oh, but he's been making music now for already 50 years, and he does this cover because I think he was pitching a cover album. Everyone I know goes away in the year. And you could have it all. My empire of dirt. I will let you down. That's when I realized maybe this Johnny Cash guy has some music I might enjoy, whereupon I discovered the Folsom Prison 
album mm-hmm. and began listening to that. But I didn't know a whole lot else about the guy. Right. Except the reviews that I did read on occasion about this movie, Walk the Line. This is all just a long way of saying that I come at the subject, the central subject of Johnny Cash, through very obscure Garrett references mm-hmm. and very little having to do with the man's biography or his actual craft. Another side issue. His father... Robert Patrick, the T-1000. Shows up his dad. <laughs> so not only did the Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator, not terminate him, but he went out and had babies. So I kicked off the movie thinking of those references. Well, there's actually even a, a scene in the movie where we're getting a shot of Johnny Cash chasing after a car <laughs> That's right. through the rear windshield. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, you know, your first appearance are dead. Ah! Like, I <laughs> <laughs> Come with me if you want to live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh. There is always room for T2. Mangold must love Terminator 2. And director too. James Mangold definitely knows his references. Now, the other key thing that I did see, I had the opportunity to make time for it, was Ray, which I think was the year uh, before this. Yeah, which I also have not seen. Now, Ray and Walk the Line both are vivid mimicry by the central performers. Mm. I find myself believing to a degree that Joaquin Phoenix is Johnny Cash, Mm. just like I thought Jamie Foxx is Ray Charles. Mm. That lasts for 45 minutes to an hour, and then things just peter out into something that feels rote. Mm -hmm. Because this movie comes on the heels of that one, and because that's one that I did see in the theater... I have a memory of how exciting the musical sequences were, but then also how I became increasingly disenchanted with the movie as it grew longer. And that's very much the way I feel about this one as well. It is startling to see a production design of mid-50s America and parts of Germany, and then going through 1960s Tennessee and all of the sort of set pieces. Look at those rad threads. Can you believe Mm. the cars these people are driving in? Look at the appliances in their kitchen and so on. (laughs) Right. All of that pleases my eye quite a lot. And Joaquin Phoenix carries his weight as a singer. And so does Reese Witherspoon as June Caracash. She carries her weight as a singer, playing, as I read, instruments they weren't raised to play. But doing so in a way that's pretty convincing. Yeah, well, according to the trivia on IMDb, they both learned to play their respective instruments, the guitar and the auto harp, from having nothing. There's a wonderful line in the movie when I think it's Johnny talking to June. We'd play faster if we could. And if you're limited by how fast you can actually move, that's very sensible. I thought it was a very good comment because it also defines a piece of what outlaw country music is all about. Mm -hmm. It's an attitude, a pose, and a willingness to tell stories of the darkness of human experiences, Mm -hmm. which is unexpected. It's not just crooning about lost love and my pickup truck and my devoted dog. It's that I'm a guy with terrible urges and I've acted on them. Yeah, yeah, that joke about, you know, what if you play a country record backwards, what happens? Like, oh, you get your dog back, you get your truck back, you get your (laughs) wife back. Like, I mean, you know, to a certain extent, you know, there is some truth, but outlaw country as I've discovered over the last many years, is much, much more than just a cliche like that. So one standout thing that uh, I want to address with you, there comes this sort of big moment in his first marriage. He's got this this long-suffering Vivian Cash, played by Jennifer Goodwin. He can't keep a regular job. He just wants to cut a record. And he meets Sam Phillips outside of his recording studio, And he's doing covers of what were then traditional songs, I think, in the country western circuit. And Sam Phillips kind of yawns in their face. They can say it's not going well. And and, and so Johnny Cash asks me, what's your problem? All right, let's bring it home. He was hit by a truck, and you were lying out in that gutter dying, and you had time to sing one song. Huh? One song. 
people would remember before your dirt. One song that would let God know what you felt about your time here on earth. One song that would sum you up. You telling me that's the song you'd sing. That same Jimmy Davis tune we hear on the radio all day about your peace within and how it's real and how you're going to shout it. Or would you sing something different? Something real. Something you felt. Because I'm telling you right now, that's the kind of song people want to hear. That's the kind of song that truly saves people. It ain't got nothing to do with believing in God, Mr. Cash. It has to do with believing in yourself. My criticism of the scene isn't about my feelings about it, because I get the feels, but my criticism for it, and this is true of most every biopic I can think of, Ray included, Mm. you find these fixture moments when the famous person meets the famous person that causes their life to hit a crossroads and make the right choice. Mm -hmm. And you have to sew that up in two minutes of screen time, so we as the audience go, ah, he was walking along one day, and at age 21, this thing happened, and boom! We see he fast-forwards to becoming the star that he always was going to be. Right. But when those elements pile up and pile up, it becomes less valuable as a screen story Mm -hmm. and more as a really badly done history. The other criticism I've got of the movie, broadly speaking, we cut off before the dude's really even 40 years old. Yeah. Most of his career really happens after that Mm -hmm. point. That's the success of a long-term marriage that is fruitful. They have a son together. They blend their respective families Mm -hmm. after their multiple divorces before they finally get themselves together and then they go through life together for decades Mm -hmm. now i find myself now that i'm deeply middle-aged much more interested in how it is a person who gets off the road quickly Mm. maintains that because largely this is the story of a man who destroys his life because he's got demons i've got a dead older brother and then he's got addiction but these aren't things that are unusual lots of people carry these problems but the meat of the cash persona that i want to know more about kicks off with the Folsom Prison album Mm -hmm. (laughs) and continues forward from there. Mm -hmm. However, by focusing on his youth, you get the rambunctious young guy and you get this charismatic Joaquin Phoenix guy who we've talked about before. Yeah. I'm a little gnarly. I'm a little too skinny. I'm a little too loud. I'm a little too blah. You insert your thing. Mm -hmm. But when he finally finds a way to break through that mold, he becomes notable, except he's also an addict and he's a bad husband and so on and so on. That's hard to take because as a younger Garrett, I would have hated what I just said. Right. Judge the movie you saw, dude, not the movie you want. The reality is you can't really give a full portrait. You can't paint a full portrait of an artist's entire life and career in like a two-hour movie. I'm not looking for the James Mangold walk the line. I'm looking for Ken Burns, Johnny Cash. (laughs) Well, there's a symptom of that that I can remember very easily that – When his divorce happens Mm -hmm. and he kind of collapses, he's in the row of his addictions. He can't get money easily. It's tied up in all kinds of different things. But he's slumming at his buddy Waylon Jennings' house, Mm -hmm. or his apartment, rather. And Waylon is probably high, strumming his guitar. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, well, I happen to know that that he and Waylon and Chris Christopherson and Willie Nelson, they did a big deal. They did a thing. The highwaymen. Waylon Jennings, I know him from Dukes of Hazzard. Making their way. That's just a little bit more than the normal 
of the stuff weaves together. And because my mind was doing that reference material, as uh. soon as he leaves the screen, where'd Waylon go? He doesn't really come. Yeah, back he's again. only in there in that one that one scene briefly, and then that's it. Yeah. And you think, well, it wasn't necessary that he be there because that was a casting choice. You got to find a lookalike. You got to have him costume a similar way. Get the hair. The I mean, that's an well, expense. It was actually Shooter Jennings, who is Waylon's son, I think, I that's think right. yeah. uh, who's doing his own thing currently in the uh, the outlaw country scene. This movie is going to always be referenced as the Reese Witherspoon Academy Award-winning performance mm-hmm. as June Carter Cash. Mm-hmm. There is a great moment where she really does sort of put all her chips on the table. Not really much of a singer, John. I mean, I have a lot of personality. I got sass. I give it my all, but my sister Nina's really the one who's got the pipes. Well, who said that? Everybody. Mom, my daddy. That's how come I learned to be funny. I'd have something to offer. <laughs> She's a person who's come out of a painful divorce. She mm-hmm. is therefore a single mother. She's touring to make money to support those children and her mother who watches them when she's away from home, feeling guilt-ridden and racked by the bankruptcy of, I have an escape being the eight-year-old girl that people find a sweetheart. Right. The only way I can make money is to tour like hell, which means I'm always away from home. Right. I'm kind of miserable. But the way that she performs in that scene at the diner counter I thought was great. Yeah. Because she does peel back the mask of Sweet Reese, who by 2005 we'd already recognized in a series of star-making turns as this blonde, beautiful, but not sexually arresting or threatening persona, Mm. who's sparky, and she is funny, and she's got good timing, and that wide smile, all of that turned differently, the way that life is caught up with her, and she just lays that in, and I thought at that point wow, this really is a good performance. Mm-hmm. Look at all of the things I'm expecting her to do, which has been the role up to now. Now she's giving me some depth. It never returns to that again. And I'm left to wonder, boy, she was over-celebrated for this role. I feel like it's my fault because, like once again, I feel like the majority of my complaints are that it was not Ken Burns as Johnny Cash, right? But so many of the supporting players are basically just kind of just caricature-ish decorations yeah the tennessee two that then tennessee three did carl perkins even have one line there's a scene towards the end where sort of he presumably has you know kicked his addictions and there's a family get together at his you know his property uh his his, his ex-wife and the kids or like nowhere to be seen. Yeah. And I just thought it would be funny if there was like a newspaper with a headline like, you know. Wife died. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Wife and kids die. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Just right. to very conveniently get them out of the picture. Right. Now, you know? now I, I, I agree with what you've just said, that the characters are there as markers to help us age up our lead. Elvis Presley shows up in this, and the actor is Tyler Hilton. And, of mm-hmm. course, we know Elvis from several other performers who've taken on the role in the roughly 20 years since this thing was cast. Yeah. But it is this, this drive-by sighting. Looky, mm-hmm. looky, 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 looky. On the other hand, I know very little about his actual life. I didn't know that he headlined Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that he toured in, into his middle years as a mainstream mainstreamer. Yeah. of his brand of country rock. It wasn't just going city to city and literally selling records out of the back of the car right. in order to pay groceries. He helped make regional art a nationally significant thing, and mm-hmm. he mainlined it at Las Vegas. And that, that's a neat set piece mm-hmm. when we get to that spot. He and June had a complicated courtship, which took many years with lots of false starts. And that strikes me as true for people who have experienced some life. But I know the bottom for me dropped out of this movie. The bottom just I don't buy it at all anymore. Right. Happens 
when Jin and her family pick him up in his drug fugue and heal him. But we get a scene of June walking hand-in-hand hand with him towards a Christian church, a mm. Protestant thing out on the prairie. But we don't explore it any. And I know that was terribly important to him. Yeah. God oh, yeah. matters to Johnny Cash. Right. I've been around church people. I come from church people. And the casualness of that being dropped off after his recovery from drug addiction and the finding of a new, fresh, and a correct romantic partner, I, I just, that was the shark jumper. Yeah. You know, the Fonz is up in the air, and I'm thinking, this is silly. Well, Why am I watching? And it's very convenient, too. Yeah. It's like, well, all he needs is, you know, a week or two off the drugs so he can detox and, mm -hmm. like, everything is fine. Addiction is an illness that isn't so much about, like, the particular substance you're hooked on most of the time. It's about something inside of you. When someone is looking to overcome their addiction, they will turn to religion. Any 12-step group is I mean, based on a religious is based on a, right. right. Higher and, power, submit. Right. And, and, and really, like, the in my mind, it just it really seems like it's just like a transference of addiction. And you're just kind of like, do you really buy this or do you just want to buy this so bad because you need to believe it? That's all that it is. Right. Any faith is a personal investment in something which is not verifiable, thus it is faith. Right. And if it's the thing that allows you to live healthfully, then so be it. Then right, have it. But but right, but but the but you know, and, and as I mentioned, you know, he did do tons and tons of gospel tunes right. throughout his career. It's huge. It's and, not a casual thing and that I, he finds I, the church. Right. And I and I have to imagine that him returning to the church, like not only because we see in the beginning his brother is trying to study to be a preacher. Yeah. So sort of religion's been on, you know, the, the periphery of this thing. But I, I, I kind of believe in my mind that like him returning to the church must have been instrumental in any kind of recovery he was in at any point. Whereas the film kind of boils it down to, you know, that just a week off the pills, we chase your dealer off. He'll get the hint after the first warning yeah. and you, you know, you're going to be fine. And it's been one of my issues with kind of these, some of these, these music, particularly biopics that we've had uh, uh, in, in recent times where, these major sort of events that have all kinds of consequences are, are very sort of like, you know, whitewashed. They're very sort of downplayed. Freddie Mercury in yeah. in the awful Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, great art comes from people that are messed up and that have, you know, these these issues. And we don't really touch that. This one doesn't doesn't gloss over it quite as much. But when we finally get to the Folsom prison concert... see him take to one cocaine is never in this movie and it, we know he had a real problem with it even the pills yes they're there but we're, we're never even told like what they are we just kind of have to infer there's some kind of amphetamine that's part of his outlaw nature is like the drugs and the alcohol and that's a major major factor in, in the art that he he created and i just feel that this film didn't didn't really get deep into the darkness of any of that it just kind of had it as a plot device well because he has some he needs to have a challenge one of the reasons i was attracted to the Folsom prison album in the first place, I think, was that sense that this was a, a kind of a homecoming. Mm -hmm. Because he had been jailed. He 
he had brushes with the law. He, his addiction caused him to misbehave in terrible ways. Mm-hmm. And this was a way of recognizing that these men here, they're still men. Right. I can speak to them because I have truths that they are aware of. Mm-hmm. The wanting to throttle your girlfriend. Right. For no reason except that you can. And I've got songs about it. Several of them, in fact. Right. Something about that really hits me. There was a point in our history where the idea of prison, like it was supposed to be uh, rehabilitative. You have transgressed the rules. You need to pay your debt to society. But if you do that, you know, you get a second chance or whatever. And, you know, to have, you know, Johnny Cash kind of have the, 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 the insight I've got that in me as well. And it's, it's a nice sort of setup scene because he's talking with the, the executives who are, though he's in the room, they're talking through and around him mm-hmm. and not actually addressing his desire to do this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go do this and make recording. And then once that's done, you tell me if you want to sell it. Right. And, of course, it becomes a monster hit for him. Yeah. To, to bring this all around, as I finished this movie, and you know, I like to listen to the end credits music because it, it was a host mm-hmm. of his hits, I wondered, why was this movie a blockbuster? You know, given yeah. this other stuff, why did this one succeed so wildly? It made a hundred million dollars yeah. plus. That's why we're talking about it, right? Do you have an answer for that, or a suggestion on why this hit people? All I can think of is that he was much more an important figure for people throughout their life, people that had grown up in the same time, than I appreciated. That must be true. I- I'm drawing a connection to. Another cultural reference. I did not grow up on the watch of John Wayne movies. Mm-hmm. But yeah, my, me either. But my grandparents thought he was always iconographically the experience of right. Hollywood. Or Gary Cooper, maybe. Yeah. Like, these were luminaries. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I didn't get into them. No, I, I didn't until until much later. Yeah. And now yeah. I, 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 I like them both. You but as, as a kid, I was like, you know, whatever. It's just some old grandpas yeah. out there. But yeah. if there are enough old grandpas out there, and, you know, this is close to 20 years ago now as we see you're talking about it. But, yeah, these would have been people who might have been entering their 60s and 70s and mm-hmm. 80s. Like, well, this is the one time a year I'm going to go to the show. Am I going to go watch A History of Violence by Cronenberg, which was in theaters at that time? Well, probably not. It's not the same yeah, crowd. Yeah, right. Definitely not. Definitely not. Well, and also, too, it's it, as we've kind of discussed, it, the, the film gets – just dark enough for people who don't want to really have to engage with something dark too much but a a mainstream audience is probably gonna you know be like feel like they've seen something that has you know an important lesson yeah and a a good story so i can see people like going back to see this again and And, again and in the end i think people remember this as, as a kind of a great love story yeah they'll discount the divorces the bad behavior the infidelity and they'll instead embrace well but they got together yeah Two connections, because this movie comes out, it's it's roughly Thanksgiving 2005. In December of 2005, there were two other movies that traded on also telling historically important stories. One, Brokeback Mountain, mm-hmm. is roughly a 20-year story of two men who age from being late teens into being roughly 40 in a male love story. Mm-hmm. And it does not end well. One is killed likely by his neighbors and the other lives in the shadow of that memory. The other is the Spielberg movie Munich. It's a showstopper of a dark movie. Yeah, I, it's, it's so it's, hard. It's one of the only. It's one of the handful of Spielberg films I haven't seen, and it's it's my number one like need to watch of oh, his. It, I do recommend it, and the reason why, among others, earlier I emphasized how kind of crazy fun it is mm. to watch 
the production design, the costumes, the props, all of that. It's true. Yeah. And it's equally fine in Brokeback as they go through that period of time from, I think it's the early 60s to the early 80s. Mm-hmm. It, it looks right. Right. So does Munich, which covers several years in the chase to bring down the, the Arab terrorists who killed the Jewish athletes at the Munich Olympics. Right. This movie is the story of people with a happy ending. Mm-hmm. The downside for this movie, from my point of view, as I mentioned earlier, is I want to see the happy ending. I want to see the couple grow old together. Yeah. We watch them as youths flower and mature through the travails of a lot of bad decision-making and addiction to come out of it together. Yeah. That's good. But I, I would like more of that story. However, that must be the thing that caused people to turn out because, well, in the same season, you could have seen Munich. Most people avoided it. Yeah. You could have seen <laughs> Broke Back. Many people enjoyed it. You could go see Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, which, of course, is what people did. Yeah, that's a generation-defining uh, right. <laughs> film. And the thing about most blockbusters is they're not really very great. They're middle brow. Right. And they the- want to make most people feel smart enough to get it and enjoy right. the ride and, and so on and so right. on. This achieves all of those signposts. In fact, really most of James Mangold's movies mm-hmm. as a filmmaker seem to achieve that. Didn't he? Isn't he responsible for the Dial of Destiny? He is. Okay. And it's a blockbuster. (laughs) (laughs) The more people a piece of art appeals to, the less good it will be because in order to win that many people over, it can't push anybody too hard into one particular direction. I guess I'm looking for a deeper sort of challenge artistically or something that's, you know, really provocative in one way or another. I want to make the parallel to a family meal. You know, you gather your loved ones and Mm. want to prepare something that everybody's going to enjoy, but you realize that this one's allergic to this ingredient, this one detests that food, and this one doesn't like things that are green on their plate or whatever. Right. So you have to devise a meal that will be... Better than 50% satisfying to everybody at the table. <laughs> right. But nobody is going to think, that oh, was the best meal of my entire right. life. Nobody's going to have that reaction. Right, because they can't. But, but everybody can have the reaction, that was a good meal. That's this movie. In that context, it almost makes the scene where he discusses the uh, prison record with the executives slightly meta. He needs a fresh sound, and, and all he wants to do is cut a live album with the same old pickers at a maximum security penitentiary. You can talk to me, you know, I'm standing right here. And what's with the black? It's depressing. Looks like you're going to a funeral. Maybe I am. Your fans are church folk, Johnny. Christians. They don't want to hear you singing to a bunch of murderers and rapists trying to cheer them up. Well, they're not Christians then. I'm fine with you doing a live record. Just not at a prison. Okay, no, no, no. We want you to do what you do. We don't want you to do it too much like you want to do it because we need to stay within these, you know, parameters so everybody will love it. This movie hits all those marks. Should there be Walk the Line 2? <laughs> no. <laughs> the later years. Well, I'm going to start out walking. Just you wait and see. Uh-uh, guitar picker, you ain't Woman. Long, 
This is Blockbusters and Bird Walks, a conversation between Garrett Chaffin-Kirai and Ed Rosa. Boop-boopity-doo. 